0: If you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 1. This morning as we begin, I want you to imagine the scene with me. In a small, modest home in a far-off town in the middle of nowhere in ancient Palestine, there is a woman in labor. This is a miracle because she never thought she would be in labor. She has been barren her entire life and is now well beyond the normal age for childbearing. Yet here she is now, full term and pushing hard to deliver her one and only son. Close by is her husband, a man who has been married to this woman her whole life, and like her is advanced in years and now having his first son, his only son. He wants to offer words of encouragement to his wife during delivery, even as as he has offered words of comfort to her throughout her life of barrenness. He wants to tell her that he loves her as he has many times before, but he can't say anything to her. In fact, he cannot say anything to anyone. For the last nine months, he has been rendered speechless. So he stands by, feeling powerless to help and express the the fullness of the range of emotions he's feeling as tears stream down his face into his priestly beard. When the labor has ended and the baby has screamed for the first time, it is a shout of joy and triumph for a couple who for years never expected to hear such sounds in their home. Yet only a week later, amidst the celebration of their family and friends, there is also fear and awe at the birth of this child, for this is no ordinary child. And the supernatural work of God has not only been seen in the life of this child's mother and father, but throughout the entire Village, The presence of God has been felt. Thus, under the inspiration of God's spirit, his servant, a doctor, a historian, and a missionary, writes of this day telling us that fear came on all the people. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. Judea, And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, What then will this child be? Decades from now, Jesus, the Son of God, would consider this boy then grown and say, He was the greatest man who ever lived. Who was this man? And how did his birth provoke such joy and fear in this small town? What were his beginnings like? What were the beginnings of this man who would one day be called the greatest man who ever lived? That's what we want to see this morning as we look to God's word at the end of Luke chapter 1. And through these events, more than anything else, what we want to see is God himself. We want to see his character. We want to see his power. We want to see his mercy. We want to see his glory. Therefore, let us go back to the beginning, as it were, of this scene. Let us go back to the beginning and see not just how people responded after the birth of this child, but let us see how they responded at the beginning of The birth of this child. Let us see the birth, the coming into this world of the last of the old covenant prophets, a man named John. Follow along as I begin reading in Luke chapter 1, verse 57. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zachariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. This is the word of God this morning. Through these verses and the rest of the passage, we see God working to bring about three things in his people. And this morning, he desires to bring about these same three things in us. And so as we begin continuing our way through Luke's gospel, unpacking the verses that are before us. First, we want to see how God has provided joy to his people. We see the provision of joy, the provision of joy. Again, Luke says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son, and her neighbors and her relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. How has God provided joy? Well, it is through the birth of this son. Remember that, Before this, again, Zechariah and Elizabeth had no children, not because they refused to obey God's first command to humanity, namely be fruitful and multiply, but because they were unable to have children. She was barren. But now, through the provision of this child, God has provided joy, and that joy permeates this passage in two ways. First, as Elizabeth herself knows, this joy comes from God's promise. There is joy from God's promise promise. God has not just whimsically decided to allow Elizabeth and Zachariah to have a son. He's not even done this out of his common grace to faithful servants. No, this has been part of his plan from the beginning. Do you remember what took place nine months before this back in the opening verses of this chapter? Zachariah was a priest and he had been chosen to go in and to offer uh, the incense of prayer and, and to, to intercede on behalf of the entire nation. And while he was talking to God, God decided to talk to him. An angel, Gabriel, appears, and he says that he is one who stands in God's presence. And now he is standing in Zechariah's presence in the temple. And he says to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. The whole thing catches the priest off guard. It is not something he is expecting to happen that day. And knowing the situation of him and his wife, knowing his advanced years, knowing the fact that essentially because of where he is from, he is a nobody in Israel. He says, how can I know this is going to be true? He doubts the promise of God through the angel. And therefore, God says to him, He will not be able to hear or to speak until God's promise is fulfilled in the birth of this son. And so, nine months later now, God has proven good on His word. He keeps His promise. And elderly Elizabeth is suddenly a mother for the first time. Is she scared? Maybe. Is she worried about living long enough to raise her son? Possibly. Is she happy? Definitely. Definitely. The, the passage of the whole town rejoiced with her. That means she herself is rejoicing. This, this old woman who should be helping to raise grandkids by now, is the first time, holding the impossible a baby of her own. Why? Because God has kept his word, and he has brought about the promise of a son. So now she is filled with joy. But more than that, there is also joy from God's mercy. There is joy from God's mercy. As we will see in a minute, the people in town didn't know about the promise given to Zechariah and Elizabeth. All they knew was a godly couple who had never had kids and were too old to have kids suddenly have a kid. And what do they say? This is the Lord's work. This has come from God's hand. This is the display of his mercy in their life. Luke says, again, Elizabeth's neighbors and relatives heard the Lord had shown great mercy to her and they rejoiced with her. Understand, God did not owe them a child. Everyone suffers in this fallen world stained by sin. There are no guarantees. And yet God had mercy on them. God gave them this son. And as we think about them being the recipients of God's mercy, I wonder how often we are the recipients of God's mercy, but we fail to see it. We fail to recognize how God has been good to us. We fail to acknowledge that mercy has come to us from his hand. Perhaps even in the midst of difficulty or just plain irritation, we never stop to consider how worse, how much worse our circumstances could be apart from the merciful hand of God. I remember one time when I was in seminary, I was coming back home from uh, work, my part-time job at uh, Chick-fil-A. Most of you in the north don't know anything about that. Uh, as they say, God invented the chicken, we invented the chicken sandwich, and that's true. If you, uh, if you ever go there, buy the chicken sandwich, okay? All right, end of commercial. But anyway, I'm, I'm driving home from my part-time job there making chicken, and uh, it's raining out, and I'm wanting to get home. Uh, my wife and I had a newborn baby at the time, and this lady turns left across three lanes of track right in front of me. I hit the brakes, nothing happens, and I slam into her, and I go in the ditch. The car is totaled. And at that point, I'm sitting at about a 45-degree angle down in the ditch, airbag deployed, glass everywhere, smoke fuming, rain coming down. I stink like raw chicken, and I'm mad. And I'm thinking, why did she do that? And so I force the door open, and I go climbing up just so mad. What are we going to do? Well, poor seminary student, I don't have money to fix this. And suddenly, all these people come running from across the street, from the bank and from the car dealership. And they're like, we called 911. And they're like, is the driver still alive? And I'm thinking, yeah, I'm standing right here. And they're like, and they're like, we called the ambulance. And someone checked on him. And I said, it's me. And they, their, their faces just turned pale, white, like they've seen a ghost. And suddenly I look back and I look at the car and I see how bad it is. And I realize, more than just being irritated at the crash, I should be thankful that I am alive. It could have been far worse. The question is, though, In in, in giving that, how often do we just completely pass over the mercies of God? How often do we grumble and whine and complain when really it could be far worse and we fail to see that God has been merciful to us, that he has kept his promise, and therefore our lives are not filled with thanksgiving and joy? How can we change that? How can we have an attitude of joy and thankfulness? I offer four simple things that we can do that will help cultivate a joyful thankfulness to our heart. First of all, dwell on what you deserve. Dwell on what you deserve. As sinful people who fall short of God's wrath, we deserve nothing less than the fullness of God's wrath. Uh, Fall short of the glory of God. I think I misspoke there. We deserve his fullness, his immediate unrelenting judgment. That's what we deserve, but that's not what we get as God's people. And therefore, secondly, we should gaze at the gospel. We should gaze at the gospel. It is not without reason that pastors and theologians of the past have said, for every one look that we take at ourselves, we should take ten looks at Christ. What's the point? Our sin will no doubt cause us to despair and to doubt God's goodness and willingness to forgive. But the assurance of our forgiveness, the assurance of God's faithfulness, is most clearly seen in Christ. The greatness, the holiness, the loveliness, the graciousness of God, all clearly seen in the face of his Son. In him only will we see not only the glory of God, but the ground of our acceptance with him and the mercy that he has displayed to us. Then third, pray about everything. Pray about everything. The reality is if we don't pray about everything, we will not be able to give thanks about everything. Just a few weeks ago, I put my keys down someplace where I don't normally put them and I could not find them. And I was running around all over the place because I had to leave and go pick the kids up from school. And I'm in a panic. I I don't know where the keys are. I'm running around the house, and I'm throwing things around, and I'm looking, and I'm opening drawers and closing drawers. I'm going through garbage, and I'm thinking, where are those keys? And I pray. I say, God, help me find those keys. I'm going to pick up my kids. A minute or two later, I find the keys. What's the first thing I say? God, thank you for finding the keys. Now, the reality is if I had not prayed and said, God, help me find those keys, number one, I might have found them on my own. But I know I wouldn't have thanked God for it. The reality is if you pray about everything, then you will be able to thank God for everything because you will have directly tied his activity in the world that you may not normally see to the very everyday circumstances of your life. Pray about everything. And then finally, reflect on God's gifts. Reflect on God's gifts. The old hymn is certainly right. Count your blessings. Count them one by one. Count your many blessings. See what God has Together with these other directions, this will help cultivate a spirit of joy and thankfulness before God in our lives. Just as Elizabeth and Zachariah themselves knew what it meant for God to experience his faithfulness to his promise and to pour out his mercy upon them. So will we. Luke has shown us how God provided joy to this couple, their family, even the whole town. But now we also see how God has cultivated faith. In Zechariah and his wife. This is the second thing that we see here: the cultivation of faith. We saw the provision of joy, and now we see the cultivation of faith. The cultivation of faith. Luke says that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. Now here we might we have what we might call foundational faith. It's faith again in God's promise. Faith in God's promise. Today, if we want to desire, if we want to demonstrate, rather, our desire to keep a promise, we do all kinds of things. For example, if you are a child on the playground, you might do the spit shake. And you shake on it. That means I am promising to keep my word. Or if you're a girl, it might be the pinky swear. Right? It's a sign that I'm going to do what I say. We got a deal. Okay? Now, most adults don't do that. Some still might. But most of us do other things like Sign contracts and make down payments. These are signs of our commitment to keep a promise to do something or to pay something off. And when we hear about this circumcision on the eighth day stuff, this is what we should think about, a sign of promise-keeping. Back in Genesis 17, when God gives to Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, a covenantal sign, a promise that he will keep the covenant and that his people should keep their part of the covenant, he says this, I will establish Abraham my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it will be a sign of the covenant between you and me. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male, who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So what does God say? God says, I am going to give you something that will be a reminder forever and always that you are my covenant people and I am your covenant, God. It will be to you and to your offspring, not just Abraham, Isaac, but Jacob, who's also called Israel, who had 12 sons, who became 12 tribes, who became a nation. The Mosaic covenant that God gives to them in Exodus also receives the sign of circumcision. Now, without being gross or graphic, think about, in part, why that is. Every man in the covenant, every day of his life, multiple times a day, in the most intimate of circumstances, will always know, I belong to God. I am not my own. I have been bought with a price. Therefore, I will love him and serve him and faithfully live as a part of the covenant. God is clear. If you do not circumcise your child, it is a sign that you want to have nothing to do with me, that you do not want to be part of the covenant. Thus, as Zechariah and Elizabeth follow the directions of the law and circumcise John on the eighth day, it represents not only his entrance into the old covenant promises with Israel, it is a sign of their faith in God's promises. It is a sign that they believe when he promised, I will be your God forever. They say, that's what we want. We want God to be our God and his God forever. We believe that he will keep that promise. Therefore, we circumcise our child as he instructed us to. They believe that God will keep his covenant with them just as he promised to Abraham almost 2,000 years before. We see faith in God's promise, but then we also see faith in God's plan. Faith in God's plan. Naming the baby on the eighth day isn't something prescribed in the law. Zachariah and Elizabeth could have named the baby whenever they wanted, but it appears they were following a tradition at the time. Culturally, at that time, in that area, it became traditional that the day you circumcised a child was also the day that you named the child. Likewise, there was a tradition that the firstborn son would be named after the father. That's why it's not surprising that all the family and the relatives that come out and they say, uh, he should be named Zachariah because that's the dad's name, right? And... Surprisingly, Elizabeth says, no, no. Verse 59, they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. Now, at this point, you realize that something has happened between um, the time that Zechariah received the promise and was told the plan of God and now. Zechariah has told her what has happened at the temple. He's told her about the angel and about God's plan to give them a son who will be great and prepare the way for the Messiah. Some will say we don't have record of that conversation so God must have revealed it supernaturally to her just as he supernaturally revealed Uh, Just previous to this, about three months before, chronologically, that Mary was bearing the Messiah, uh, the Son of God. But I don't think that's the case, because there we specifically have Luke telling us that Elizabeth was filled with God's Spirit and uttered this prophetic word. Here there's no evidence of that. Therefore, I don't think that God supernaturally reveals it. I think that Zechariah has told her, this is what the angel said. This is what he looked like when he appeared. This is how I felt. This is why I cannot speak anymore because I'm a lunkhead who didn't believe. Okay, All of that, as we will see in a minute, was likely conveyed on a writing tablet. Either way, the point is, she had faith in God's plan. She insists, no, 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 no. Tradition doesn't matter. His name is going to be John. Now, we all know some people give their children goofy names, right? Uh, we have uh, this especially seen in celebrities where we have a baby named Apple. I'm sorry, that that was a fruit that I ate, not a child's name, okay? Another famous person wanted to name their child Seven or Soda. So if you know what I'm talking about, no good. This is not that unusual though, right? John is not that unusual. Nevertheless, probably being a good Baptists, they say, this is not tradition, We've got to stick with tradition. John can't be right. What are you talking about, woman? She doesn't know anything. She just came through labor. Let's go talk to the father. He will tell us what we should do. So they go off to talk to Zechariah. Verse 61. They said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to the father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And Luke says, they all wondered. First of all, we should note here that it seems likely that Zechariah wasn't just mute, but deaf as well. Otherwise, why would they be signing to him what they are trying to convey? They would have just spoke, he would have heard it, he would have answered. Furthermore, the word that Luke uses here for mute can also mean deaf or both at the same time. We see this in the Old Testament where idols representing false gods are said to be both unable to speak and unable to hear the prayers of those praying to them. Second, we should note that our translation obscures the point of Zechariah's response. They all do this. I have no idea why. I I know it's for good English, but I think it's fine. Zechariah actually writes on the tablet, John is his name. That's the word order in which it comes to us in the Greek text. And that is significant because you most often put the word you want to emphasize first in the sentence. So think about about what Zechariah is saying. What did the angel say? His name shall be called John. Isn't that what we read? And what does Zachariah say now? John is his name. It might not be his name. It might be his name. No, no. It is his name. Why? Because he has learned the lesson well. God has declared his name shall be John. Therefore, in his mind, the baby's name is John. Full stop. God said it. It's done. Zachariah is saying, I don't care about tradition. This is what God wants. This is what he has told me to do. This is his plan, and I'm following it. I'm trusting him now. I believe it is true, and I will believe to my dying day, John is his name. And Zachariah has come to this deeper faith in God and his plan, but it has not come easily. It has come through, diver- through adversity. It has been a hard lesson to learn. Again, he has been deaf and dumb for nine months because he didn't believe in the first place. For nine months, Zechariah has been isolated from his family and friends. For nine months, Zechariah has been forced to think about God and his lack of faith in God. Here is a man who is a priest in Israel, and in, and in his big moment, he books. He doesn't trust the word of God. He, he his, is responsible, well, how can I know this is true? And he just know he's kicking himself the whole time saying, Zechariah, what is the matter with you? For nine months, Zechariah has been given the time to prepare to decide again. Will he trust God in his plan? Or will he continue to doubt? And when the time comes, it is clear he has learned what God wanted him to learn. Nine months of cultivated faith are made clear. When he grabs that small wooden board covered in wax and scribbles into it, John is his name. Between these two believers, there is a clear sign that there is faith, both in God's promise and faith in God's plan. Therefore, they have faith for God's praise. Faith. For God's praise. They made signs to his father. Inquiring what he wanted him to be called. He asked for a writing tablet and wrote. His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open. And his tongue loose. And he spoke blessing God. Isn't it interesting that. It wasn't the birth of John. That loosed the tongue of the priest's lips. It was the obedience of his faith. That triggered him from the release of his plight. Not because God was waiting for him. Not because God needed him, it was, I think, as an encouragement to Zachariah. It was giving him the opportunity to display both to himself and to those watching his faith in God. And think about what he says. Nine months he hasn't been speaking, and what is the first thing that he utters? Praise to God. Zechariah blesses God because God has blessed Zechariah. Think about that for a moment. He doesn't say, it's about time, begrudging God for what he has done. Nor does he say something like, oh, that was terrible, drawing the focus and the attention on himself and the relief of his condition. No, just the opposite. He draws the attention to God and gives him praise because it was through his affliction that he learned deeper faith and obedience. Last month I posted a quote on Facebook and Twitter from a Christian singer. It was a profound question, an important question. It was this. He asked, Do you trust God enough to let him afflict you? Do you trust God enough to let him afflict you? That's an important question because today in our culture, we run like crazy from affliction, adversity, difficulty, stress, pain, suffering. We say, no thanks, and we run as if the best thing in the world could be for us to live a pain-free life. Loved ones, that is not, that is not the best thing that could be for us in this world. Why? Because God so often uses pain and suffering and adversity and affliction to cultivate deeper faith in us, to grow godliness in us. You remember Psalm 119? In verse 67, the psalmist says, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep Think about the the profundity of that statement. He's saying, when I had an easy life, I was tempted to go astray, to live contrary to what God wanted for my life. But then, God, you brought affliction into my life, and now what do I do? I follow your word. I I have been forced to come close to you and see that you are good, that your word is true and right. And now I have written the longest psalm in the Bible declaring how much I love your word. Are you going astray in life? Are you moving towards greater and greater disobedience? Are you beginning to drift from God? Then understand God may afflict you to bring you back to him. Why? Because he loves you. He loves you. I I tell this to my kids all the time. I am not disciplining you because I hate you. It's because I love you. And I know it sounds cliche, but guess what? I learned it from God. In Hebrews chapter 12. The apostle says, if God doesn't love you, then he won't discipline you. Only an illegitimate son is not disciplined by his father. Th- think about what, what Hebrews are saying there. If you're not really a Christian, if you're not really a child of God, then God doesn't really care. You're running from him, and for a while he's happy to let you do so. But if you are his If Christ has died and shed his blood for you, if he has adopted you into his family and he sees you going off and making bad decisions and going towards sin, he is going to do whatever it takes to get you to wake up to your rebellion, to wake up to your foolishness and come back to him where it is safe and right and best for your life. That means the discipline of the Lord may even be affliction. And so, again, the question is asked to you, dear Christian. Do you trust God enough to let him? Do you trust that he will keep his promises to you in Christ? Do you trust that his plan is to do all things for your good and conform you to the image of his son, as he says in Romans 8? Do you trust him enough that his mercy to you is evident and your first response to affliction or blessing is worship and praise of his name? Some of you are here this morning and you have experienced affliction. And it's not because you're a child of God, but rather God has been merciful to you. And he has desired to shake you up so that you will perhaps look to him for the first time. That you will see that life cannot be lived apart from God in any meaningful or pleasing way. That when we seek to be king of our lives, we will simply end things in destruction. And ultimately, the Bible says, destruction under God's hand. And therefore, He has allowed affliction and adversity into your life to get you to see your need of Him. And this morning, I implore you to look to Him in faith, to trust in Christ who suffered the ultimate affliction in your place that you might be made right with Him. We've seen the provision of joy from God. We've seen the cultivation of faith. And finally, from this passage, we see the anticipation of greatness. The anticipation of greatness. Verse 63, Zechariah asked for a writing tablet tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was open and his tongue loose. And he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. John is born. Back in verse 15, the angel said that he would be great before the Lord. Moreover, as we said at the beginning of the sermon, 30 years from now, Jesus will look at him and say, Among those born of women, none are greater than John. This great man is now born, and all in the village are in awe of what has happened. And they are anxiously waiting to see what kind of man this boy will grow up to be. Thinking about this greatness of John, then we see that he had a greatness that provokes the fear of God. He had a greatness that provokes the fear of God. Luke says that the moment that John is named, his father's lips are loose and he praises God. All these people, remember, have been with him for the last nine months and longer. Some of these people have probably grown up with him uh, at uh, Sabbath school or whatever they had when they were little, right? And uh, they went and have Sunday school. Do You understand what, what point there? Uh, and uh, and so the, you know they're as old as he is. They're, they're you know maybe as they grow up and they got married, they're thinking our kids are going to play together, and be friends, and, and there's no kids. And they see him faithfully living out his life as. As a priest, they see him before his affliction. They see him now in his affliction. Suddenly he comes out of the temple and he can't speak, and they're wondering what in the world happened to him. And now they see him released from his affliction. And what is the result? Fear came on all of them, Luke says. Fear came on all of them. Chris Poblete has just written a short book called The Two Fears, where he gives a brief but excellent discussion on the concept of fear in the Bible. And it's an, important, uh, it's an important book because although the concept comes up all the time in the Bible, I fear many Christians struggle to understand what the fear of the Lord is and what it is not and how we are to live in light of it. For the Bible commands us over and over again, fear the Lord your God. But what does that mean? As the title imp- implies, Poblete warns that there are two kinds of fears presented in the Bible, a fear that is forbidden and a fear that is commended. What is the difference between these two? Well, he quotes from people throughout church history. Stephen Charnock said that the difference between them is that one is bondage fear and one is reverential fear. George Swinnick said it was the difference between filial fear and servile fear. For John Gill, it was the difference between idolatrous fear and worshipful fear. For Charles Spurgeon, it was fear that draws men further from God versus fear that drives men for God the question is what how do we fear God is it a fear that drives us away or is it a fear that draws us close from his unusual conception to his unconventional naming to the unexpected praise of his father it is the revelation of God's power in the greatness of John even as a child that induces godly fear among the people of this village what about us let us never forget who God is our God holds the power to save sinners, to reverse death, to destroy the bonds of Satan and sin. He is the mighty Savior and great Redeemer who can regenerate a heart, reform it from the inside out, and keep it safe for all eternity. Do you know this, God? Do you know the power He has over you? Do you acknowledge, do you give credence to His power, His majesty, His splendor, and His being? That is godly fear that is the fear of the lord that all of us should have secondly in john there is a greatness that comes from the presence of god there is a greatness that comes from the presence of god this is the burning question on everyone's mind verse 66 what then will this child be all of these amazing events surrounding john's birth are not lost on these people and the result is discussion and anticipation. All these things were talked about all throughout the hill country of Judea, Luke says. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts. You just imagine the scene. And you get any close-knit small group of people together. And everybody just intrinsically wants to know what's going on with everybody else, right? And some of that is well-meaning. They, they love these people. They're interested in them. They want to know about them. And sometimes there's just gossip, right? You can imagine the scene all throughout this area. People are talking about these things and wondering about these things and thinking about these things and asking themselves, what is it all about? What is going to happen? And as he is growing up, everyone is eyeing. Every time John comes by, they've kind of got an eye on him like, what's he going to do today? Are we going to see something special? What's up with this kid? What's going to happen? In that sense, it's not surprising we're going to to read uh, at the end of next week's sermon that basically at some point, as John is a teenager, he says, I'm out of here, and he goes off to the wilderness to finish growing up and becoming a man. I wouldn't blame him living under such scrutiny. Everybody is wondering, what is going to be with this child? Why? Because they know God is doing something. God is at work here. He's revealing his greatness in this son, and we want to know what child is this going to be. What is he going to grow up to do? For the reader of this gospel, we've already seen the hand of the Lord is upon him. We've known for 60 verses that he was filled with the Spirit even from his birth. And so when we see now Luke saying again that the people acknowledge the hand of the Lord was upon him, we say, we know, we know, and we're anxious to see what is going to become of him as well. If we've read the whole book before, we know what God has planned for John. But imagine being the first readers of this book. People in the far reach of the Roman Empire, Gentiles, who have not grown up with the scriptures. They've not grown up in Judaism. They didn't know who Jesus was until someone like Paul came through and told them. They maybe have never even heard of John, and they're wondering. People like Theophilus, to whom this book is written, who have believed in Christ but know very little of these, of these early details, are thinking, who is this man going to be? Who is this great man, John. What did people think when this young boy grew up into manhood out in the wilderness of Judea? What did people think when he returned to the riverbank of the Jordan as a prophet calling for the nation to repent? What did they think when he denounced the religious leaders as, as having a, a pious reputation but lacking in true righteousness? What did they think of a man who was so bold to us to preach and condemn Herod for his sin to his face in his court? What do they think of this powerful preacher who called people everywhere to repent and be baptized in anticipation of the coming of God's Savior? What do they think when this fiery prophet one day smiled with the fullness of joy and pointed at this nobody, this son of a carpenter from out in Judea, Bufu, and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here was this great man, the greatest of all men who ever lived. And when the time came, though, he gladly stepped aside in humility to give glory to another. In that sense, John is like the best man at a wedding. He, he takes extraordinary care in grooming himself and looking his best. He helps to organize the groomsmen and takes care of plans and the family. He makes sure that all of the, uh, the, 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 the grandmothers are, are, are where they're at and they're, they're comfortable. And he does it all not for himself or for his glory, but that the groom may shine on them. Likewise, John came in greatness, not just in his own experience of God's powerful presence in his life and the filling of God's Spirit, but by his pointing to the presence of God among men in Jesus Christ. John's greatness came in being able to do what no other prophet could do, but the New Testament says long to do, and that is stare in the face of the promised Messiah and say, this is the man. He is the Savior of the world. Trust him, follow him, and be saved by him. John's whole life was about pointing to Christ. That is what made him great. And when we see that, when we acknowledge that is what he is about, then we should look from the greatness of John to the superior greatness of Christ. And when we do that, we will find ourselves experiencing the kind of spiritual growth that Zachariah and Elizabeth have experienced for the past nine months cultivating in the birth of this son. When we look to Christ and his superior greatness, we will experience God's provision of joy as we receive his promised salvation through the death of his son. We will have joy in knowing that this forgiveness of sins comes from God's person, uh, merciful hand and not our own working. We will also find God cultivating faith in our lives, faith in the new covenant that God has ratified by the shedding of Christ's blood and a growing faith as God provides for us and protects us as His sons and daughters. Such faith will lead us to praise Him even through the trials of life. Finally, if we look from the greatness of John to the superior greatness of Christ, we will anticipate the full revelation of the greatness of our Savior, awaiting the return of, Of Christ to establish his rule over all things, redeeming his people, making an end of sin forever. In other words, we will fear his name, humbly serving him in this life, drawing near to him in faith, even as we look forward to eternity in his presence. May that be the desire of our heart this morning. Father, we are thankful for this passage. We are thankful for your word, which tells us of your servant John. Not only the greatness of his birth, but anticipating the greatness of his life and how that greatness is meant to be like the moon, which simply reflects the glory of the sun. So also John's greatness was meant to be a reflection, an anticipation, a sign, pointing us to the perfect greatness of your son, our Savior, who came as prophet, priest, and king, the perfect Savior and mediator between God and men. Father, this morning I pray that we would clearly see Christ in His glory and that, Father, we would then, like Zachariah and Elizabeth, learn to live by faith. Seeing Your hand for millennia, guiding Your people, leading up to this point in history where Your own Son steps into this world to be our Savior. Father, may we not only live for Him, may we proclaim Him God. And may that be the joy of our life. It's in His name that we pray. Amen.